popular church consultant and leader within the emerging church, which is changing its shape even as we speak, wrote in one of his books entitled The Baby Boomerang these words, Have you ever taken the time to read messages by some of the great 19th century preachers? If you have, you will probably have noted that men of that era addressed quite a different crowd than we do today, and so they addressed them in a very different manner. And because of those differences, I disagree with those who say that such messages are appropriate now for our time, which of course would rule out Jonathan Edwards and sinners in the hands of an angry God. He went on to write, you see, people in our culture are broken and deeply wounded. They need desperately to be healed and put back together, which obviously raises the point that evidently people in Edwards' community in 1734 weren't broken and in need of being put together. The consultant concludes, yes, different times do require different messages. Well, unfortunately, that kind of consulting has won the day in the evangelical church, primarily in our country, and most assuredly in our own generation. Now, a host of pastors and seminary professors consider the idea of preaching on the subject of accountability before God, a God of wrath and and judgment, Uh, Any mention certainly of hell and fire and and, uh, brimstone and the coming wrath of God to sort of be a a practical stain upon the reputation of Christianity. So one pastor advertised his church, and I quote, There is no fire and brimstone here, no Bible thumping, just practical messages. As if learning how to stay out of hell isn't practical. As if learning how to avoid the wrath of God isn't something really good to know. That might come in handy one day. Another pastor said, services at our church, uh, you don't hear people threatened with hell or referred to as sinners. The goal is to make them feel welcome. We don't want to drive people away. Can you imagine a medical doctor applying that approach to his patients? He will never seek to offer the medication. He'll never refer to any diseases they have. That would be too personal. He'll certainly never recommend surgery. That would be way too invasive. He'll never, in fact, tell them they're sick, even if they're terminally ill. His goal is to simply have them visit his practice and feel welcomed. He doesn't want to drive anybody away. What kind of doctor is that? In a word, unemployed. How many preachers should be? One author wrote, No wonder nominal Christians and even unbelievers in our generation are leaving church feeling good about having been in the service. Why? Their their self-esteem is safely intact. Their minds and hearts have been sparked and soothed with soundbite theology, Christian principles, and a few practical pointers dealing with everything from themselves to their kids and their careers. But as the word of God penetrated their comfort zone in the veneer of self-delusion and self-satisfaction. So here's the challenge. If the goal of the gospel is to make people comfortable, then we're obviously going to have to redefine the gospel, right? Because the gospel is full of uncomfortable truths. So is it any wonder then in our generation that anything of the gospel that is personal and confrontive or distasteful is being peeled away? 
In fact, I read not too long ago the results of one survey taken among students who were attending an evangelical seminary. Now, these are people who are expecting to go into the ministry and supposedly preach the Bible and teach it. Revealed, however, that 46% of them, nearly half of the students questioned, felt preaching about hell was, quote, in poor taste, end quote. Now, somewhere along the line, their professors failed to inform them that Jesus Christ had more to say about hell than all of the prophets and all of the apostles combined, which means he often spoke then in poor taste. You'd think he wanted people to know the uncomfortable truth of coming judgment. Listen, my friend, a gospel that downplays the wrath of God doesn't help people. It hurts them, and it will hurt them for a very, very long time. And it is another gospel. That'd be kind of like a man taking a boatload of his friends on a boat just north or up from the Niagara Falls, and as they get swept into the current, he tells them to worry about it, and whatever you do, don't listen to that, that rumbling noise you hear up ahead. Don't worry. No need to feel uncomfortable. My friends, Jesus Christ is really not concerned with our comfort. He's concerned with the conformity of our lives to the objective truths of Scripture. He is not concerned of how comfortable we will feel in our own personal shroud. He is interested in personal radical conversion. The death and life of Jesus Christ was was not to save us from boredom or poverty or a bad job or a bad back or low self-esteem. He came to redeem us from spiritual slavery to, to sin and save us from everlasting judgment. So the Apostle Paul would write it this way. The wages of sin is what? Death. That is the paycheck for sinners is you gonna, you're going to die. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now the gospel message, comprising both elements, both the bad news and the good news, is being preached around the globe without apology, without any advertising schedule, without any local sponsors, or without any sold tickets. It is being delivered by three unique messengers, We've discovered them, they're three angels, and their message in the future is as important for us today as it will be then. Let's go back to Revelation 14 where we uncover the truth of these angels and their messages. Their manuscripts are provided there in chapter 14 of Revelation. The first angel is circling the globe. If you were with us in our last discussion, preaching the gospel, highlighting creationism. In fact, he declares in in verse Seven, that we ought to fear God and give him glory. Why? Because the hour of his judgment has come. Of course, they're in the tribulation and it has indeed in a unique way come. So do what? Worship him, verse 7 of chapter 14. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and the springs of water. In other words, acknowledge creator God. The gospel of creationism. The second angel preaches the consummation of God's reign over the kingdoms of the world. In fact, he talks in verse 8 about this second angel speaking the news that Babylon the Great has fallen. That's a a phrase, perhaps, of all of the kingdoms at the height of their power who would seek to wrestle away the glory of God and the worship of God. And he says, effectively, they have fallen. 
like a house of cards, the best that earth can produce, the greatest power on the planet will fall in this coming day. Then the third angel appears. He would have never been invited, by the way, into the average church in America. Why? Because he delivers a gospel of condemnation, which he describes in vivid detail as he describes the horrors of hell. Now, in our last study, we began to expound on the clear meaning of this angel's final message. And by the way, you discover in this the grace of God. That God is sending an angel who will circle the globe as, as the time of tribulation is nearing an end, delivering the people one more opportunity to hear the gospel and believe. Those millions, perhaps billions, who are on the verge of receiving the mark of the Antichrist on their right hand or their forehead, denoting that they will worship the false Messiah. So he sends this angel delivering the warning of of the terror and the horror of the wrath of God in this coming place called hell. Now the immediate context is then these in the tribulation who are being warned not to take the mark of the beast but follow after Christ. The fuller picture given to us in the rest of uh, the book of Revelation points to and effectively culminates in chapter 20. Uh, for those who disregard the gospel and face this coming hell. So this third angel effectively takes the lid off of hell. He describes it for us. It's no longer hidden. It isn't in the recesses of dusty books and a former evangelical church that will no longer deliver the news. Why? Because we want everybody to feel welcome and we don't want to drive anybody away. Listen, this one angelic message Before we dive in, let me tell you, it has created more heartburn in the world of religion than just about any other text of scripture for religious worlds all over the map, from Seventh-day Adventists, Mormons, Roman Catholics, liberal Baptists, and all the other Protestants, the emergent church leaders, and anybody that doesn't believe in a conscious, eternal place of torment. They're going to have to do something with this text in Revelation 14. They're going to have to redefine the truth here. They're going to have to dilute it. Maybe they'll come up with an escape hatch so after a certain amount of time you can get out and be free. Or maybe we'll just disregard it or choose to disbelieve it. Let me tell you in this opening comment that this angel delivers the unpopular truth that the wrath of God, we've already learned in our last session together, the wrath of God is personal. All the personal pronouns, beginning in verse 9, if anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. So we also learn that it's not only personal, but terrible. This is unmixed wrath. This is straight anger. This is straight fury. This is 100% proof fury and wrath. It's personal. It is terrible. And this, this warning, by the way, is, is to the entire human race. This, this warning of a coming hell is not, you know, is not just for Adolf Hitler and Mussolini and, and Jack the Ripper. People who look better than you, or whoever you want to put in here. Madoff would make the list. Michigan State fans. Whoever you want to put into that list. Okay? Those are all the M's I could think of. 
No, that's the startling thing about this angelic message. Had this warning come to mass murderers and, and serial rapists and dictators and tyrants, most people would say, yeah, they got it, they got it coming. We, we like this place. Preach on. There's got to be a place for Hitler. And it's not in the same place where I'm going to be. So we believe this. He's got to be put somewhere. No, this warning happens to be for everyone who denies the glory of a creator God, verse 7. Those who place their faith in false religion, verse 8. Those who worship someone other than the living Lord Jesus Christ, verse 12. This warning isn't just for all the really bad people in the world. This warning is for the person sitting in your seat. This warning is for people who stand behind wooden things called pulpits. This is then where religion goes into hyperdrive. This can't be. This can't be true. I mean, if we're going to go along with this judgment of God thing, we've got to come up with something a lot more palatable than fire and brimstone for, for non-Christians. I mean, how, how barbaric is that? That isn't appealing to the masses. It isn't politically correct. It isn't spiritually or religiously correct. I mean, this is going to drive people away. It might drive some to the cross of Christ. And maybe you today will run to the one who bore the wrath of God on the cross for you so that by faith in him alone you are delivered from the wrath to come. And if you are, you will be delivered from wrath and fury that is personal. It is terrible. The third point that I would use in outlining this angel's message is that the wrath of God is not only personal and terrible, it is painful. Go back to verse 10 and notice the middle part. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Now just as sort of a side note here, you notice that the devil is not managing hell. He is one of the occupants in the future. Demons are not terrorizing people. They're not running around sticking people with their, with their pitchforks. They are incarcerated. Now, hell is primarily created for the devil and his angels, those that, that, that rose in that potential coup d'etat in Matthew 25, 41. We're told that it's created just for them. But they're not running the place. You learn here that in this descriptive phrase that, that hell is under the, the omnipotent, omniscient God, the Lamb. And hosts of heaven. They're managing it. It's under his control. Which makes it even all the more terrifying. Now notice the descriptive phrase that informs us of hell's torment. The angel described it as a place of of fire and brimstone. The word fire, poor. The word brimstone. You could translate it sulfur, thion is the word, occur together six times in the book of Revelation. Four times they refer to the lake of fire and brimstone or sulfur that is the final destination of unbelievers. Now this phrase, fire and brimstone, if you've been in the word long or known the Lord long, it'll take you back in your mind to Genesis 19, 24, where the Lord rained down 
fire and sulfur or fire and brimstone upon Sodom and Gomorrah. The psalmist David said that upon the wicked, God would rain down coals of fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. Psalm 11 verse 6. The prophet said that the vindicating, condemning, wrathful, judging breath of the Lord is a stream of burning sulfur. Isaiah 30 verse 33. If you remember your chemistry class, sulfur is that yellowish element that burns with a blue flame while all the while emitting a noxious sulfur dioxide gas. Sulfur and, and fire brimstone and fire are found just so you can get an image in your mind in volcanic regions such as Sicily and and Iceland and places in in Japan. I remember being flown in a helicopter over a a dormant um, volcano just outside of Kagoshima, Japan and we actually flew over the mouth of it and just hovered there Rather spectacular, but somewhat unnerving, and the, the, the tour guide must have noticed because he told me, now, don't worry, the volcano hasn't erupted in about 98 years. That was very reassuring uh, to me, and I said, let's just fly on, you know, move on. And imagine, imagine being brought to final judgment where we're told in Revelation 20 that all the condemned of humanity will be thrown into this permanent lake described here, one of fire and brimstone. Imagine being given an immortal body that will survive this torment yet suffer in it as well. The thought of molten rock, poisonous minerals and gases, the pain of fire, the endless existence of suffering and torment should cause one to do what? To repent and to follow after Christ. I mean, you're given the news as a warning. That's why the angel is being sent by God in his grace all around the globe to warn them, don't follow the false Messiah. Bend your knee to the lamb. What's the, what's the result? Okay, I hear the description. I will follow Christ. See, this angel is telling them, and I'm effectively delivering the message to you, that this place is a place that you'd like to avoid at all costs. The question is, will you? There's no need to risk. There's no need to speak with bravado. There's no need to shrug it off. It's the truth of Scripture. You know, I hear people telling me, ah, I'm going to be in hell with all my friends. You know, we're, all, we're just going to party down there. They haven't studied the record of Scripture as the angel takes the lid off hell and shows you inside. The bravado of a man like, like Paul Adair, an oil field firefighter. He was made famous in 1968 by a movie uh, that, where John Wayne played him, a movie called Hellfighters. An actual man, an actual firefighter after the first Gulf War, in fact, Red Adair led the, the efforts to cap the Kuwaiti oil wells that were set ablaze by the defeated army. Perhaps you remember seeing some pictures of that. He, uh, he joked in 1991 that it would be no different after he died than being out there fighting those flames. He said, and I quote, I've made a deal with the devil. The devil is going to let me live in an air-conditioned place when I go down there so I won't put all the fires out. And everybody, of course, laughs 
Midair died at age 89. The devil, he may have tragically discovered by now, is a liar. Besides, the devil doesn't control the temperature or its punishments. They are controlled by a God who will demonstrate his wrath forever against all unbelief. It will be sinners, not in the hands of a failed devil, but sinners in the hands of an angry God. The wrath of God will be personal to all who suffer. It will be terrible, undiluted anger. The wrath of God will be painful, fire, and sulfur. There's more to this angel's warning. If he doesn't have our attention yet, he'll have it now, perhaps. He goes on to say in verse 11 that the wrath of God is eternal. Look at that phrase. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night. Those who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Of course, the immediate context is those who choose to follow after this religion rather than Jesus Christ. The broader context is those, of course, who deny him. And one day, Hades will be poured into an everlasting lake of fire. There are those that would say that the wrath of God is not eternal. It's immediately obvious here that this angel would strongly disagree with those who deny the eternality of hell. And there are more and more in our generation, there are more men now filling the pulpits of churches in our country today who are denying this doctrine. That up until about the early 1800s was universally believed by those who claimed to know Christ and the scriptures. In the last 180 years to 200 years, it's amazing to see as J.I. Packer, universalism, the, the, the idea that, that hell is not eternal for people in conscious torment. He said it has quietly slipped within the evangelical church. And I, I, am, I don't hesitate to say names at times, but I, I really do in this account because I think it would be too embarrassing to be recorded and then played on the radio. The names of men who've abandoned the eternal truth of hell. And they're going to have to contend with Christ who said in Matthew's gospel that those who are condemned will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous will go into eternal life. You might write this reference down because you'll have people asking you about the eternality of hell. Matthew 25, verse 46. The condemned will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous will go into eternal life. In that text, the same construct, the same vocabulary, you have a parallel between eternal life in one verse and eternal punishment, clearly stating that that both are without end. You can't believe that one doesn't last forever if you don't believe the other doesn't last forever. And how many want to believe in an everlasting heaven? Just about everybody I talk to. In other words then, the torment of the lost in hell will last as long as the blessedness of the saved, the redeemed, in heaven. Furthermore, in Mark chapter 9, Jesus Christ refers to hell as that unquenchable fire. He refers to hell as a place where their worm does not die. In other words, they have some sort of body, immortal, but yet it is, it is 
capable of enduring the corrupting influences of, of disease and the effects of this torment. He said in Mark 9:48 again, the fire is never quenched. His message is consistent with the prophet Isaiah who said that the transgressors will suffer where their worm will not die and their fire will not be quenched, Isaiah 66, 24. Add to that the Lord Jesus who at one point pulled the curtain back and allowed us to see down into Hades, as it were, a place separated by a chasm All those unbelievers went to the side of torment. Those who believed prior to the resurrection of Christ went to Abraham's bosom, I believe, now taken to heaven. It was paradise. And he allowed us to see, not in a parable, but in a true story, the place of torment where he says that this rich man who didn't believe in Christ as Lazarus who did, or the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, fulfilled in the person of Christ, that this rich man went to a place of torment and he was in anguish in the flame. Luke 16. Now let me ask and answer quickly three questions related to this doctrine of eternal conscious punishment. First, are these flames, fire and brimstone, Revelation 14, Luke 16, the place of flame. Isaiah 66, the fire that will not be quenched. Are those flames literal flames? Is this literal? Is this really fire? Well, you you have a choice. You can either hold a sola scriptura and let the scriptures answer that question for you or scramble, as religions do, for another explanation. But let me give a further answer beyond what we've already heard from the lips of Christ in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and from the pen of Isaiah. Uh, another insight is provided, in fact, in the parables. When Jesus Christ preached his parable on the wheat, referring to the believers, and the tares, or the weeds, referring to the unbelievers, it's interesting that as he came back later to explain it to his disciples, each element was given a figurative meaning except fire. In Matthew 13, the Lord explained that the one who sows the good seed is the Messiah. The field is the world. The good seed is the son, are the sons of the kingdom. The tares, or weeds, are the sons of the evil one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers are are angels. But then Christ stepped away from parabolic analogy and he said, this is what's going to happen. We're going to come through and call through, reap through the kingdom, and we'll take those who are lawless, that is those who deny the gospel, and we will throw them into the furnace of fire in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He that has ears, let him hear. Matthew 13. In other words, are you listening? Everything in this parable has figurative meaning to describe what will happen except for fire in this place of torment. It's to be understood as it is in the words of Christ in several passages of Scripture as literal. And their fire will not be quenched. The angel here reminds them in this in, in this gospel message and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone it's literal language number two second question if the fire is literal well then literal fire consumes so then people would be consumed in hell 
In other words, then, we have found us a, a reason to believe in annihilationism. That's a popular belief that is growing more and more popular, again, with in evangelical circles, it's a loophole that basically says that after some time, based on how bad of a sinner you are, you are extinguished. You're snuffed out. You cease to exist then. If you're not so bad a sinner, it's quickly. If you're one of those really bad guys, it's a long, long time. Listen, I would love to believe that. You could push me across the the, the line into annihilationism with a feather if it were up to me. I would love to believe in a place other than an eternal place of conscious torment. I would love to believe that those who disbelieve in Christ will at some point in time be snuffed out. But I can't because of the record of Scripture and what it teaches Isaiah uses the same language, that it is literal, which means just as the resurrected body, the believer is raised to enjoy the eternal conditions of heaven. And there are going to need to be some changes for us to enjoy the eternal conditions of heaven, right? So also the resurrected body of the unbeliever is equipped to endure forever the eternal suffering of hell. And so we're told here that this fire even, the smoke, goes up forever and ever. One evangelical stalwart who defends the truth of a literal interpretation of Scripture made an interesting point. He said, I'd like for those people who who believe that the wicked are going to be burned up, I'd like for them to explain if God is going to burn up the wicked, why he doesn't put out the fire. It goes on and on forever and ever. But doesn't the Bible say that the unbeliever will be destroyed? It does. Peter writes that a judgment of fire is coming for the judgment and destruction of ungodly men. 2 Peter 3.7 And there's a proof text for the annihilationist. Those who are leaving, abandoning orthodox doctrine as taught in scripture. There is their proof text. The only problem is uh, that they... They must ignore the Greek language. The word for destruction is apolia, and it can be translated ruined or wasted. In fact, the same word is used by the disciples in Matthew chapter 26, verse 8, to speak of the ointment that was poured upon the head of, of Jesus Christ. They complained that it had been wasted or ruined. Apoleia, it's the same word used here. So that ointment didn't cease to exist. It's just in their assessment, it was ruined. It was wasted. So the unbeliever then is Apoleia. He is destroyed. It doesn't mean he ceases to exist. It means that his life is ruined. His life is eternally wasted. In the assessment of God. So the fire is literal. And yet the flames only torment. They do not consume. A third question would be this then. Is this really, Stephen, is it really eternal? In other words, does forever mean forever? 
Well, the angel warns using, again, the phrase, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night, those who have effectively denied the true Messiah. Well, that phrase, forever and ever, appears 11 times in the book of Revelation. I'll give them to you. It expresses, first of all, the eternal existence of God. How long will that be? Forever. Revelation 4, 7, 10, and 15. It speaks forever and ever. It's used in Revelation to speak of Christ's eternal existence. It speaks of God's eternal reign, chapter 11, verse 15. Christ's eternal existence, chapter 1, verse 18. It's used to speak of the eternal glory of the Lamb, chapter 5, verse 13. It appears again to describe the eternal reign of the believer, chapter 22, verse 15. How long would you like that to last? It also is used to describe the eternal doom of the devil, chapter 20, verse 10. Would you like a loophole that allows him to get out? Would you like an escape hatch? Or maybe after so much time, he also enters heaven. Many that I've talked to would like to believe in that. And so this forever and ever, however, consistently with its other usages, would mean that the doom of the devil is eternal. And finally, it is used to speak of the eternal torment of the lost. Chapter 19, verse 3, and here in our text today, chapter 14, verse 11. Listen, eternal means eternal. Forever means forever. The same Greek word used over and over again to speak of the eternality of heaven is used to speak of the eternality of hell. And no kind of semantic manipulation or the twisting of Scripture can get around the horrifying message contained in the gospel that just as heaven will last forever, so will hell. So one last question. Is there no way out of it? Is there no way out of it? Certainly religions worldwide have found loopholes. Mankind is desperate to find one. Universalism is one of them. Growing in popularity, this belief says that hell does last forever. But the devil and his angels are the only inhabitants simply because everybody else is going to be saved. In differing ways of explaining it, universalists believe that everybody somehow connects to some truth of Christianity no matter how diluted or or strange. Even though they may deny the deity of Christ, even though they may deny the sufficient atonement of Christ, even though they may deny many of these other cardinal doctrines that we would consider salvific, saving, they, they somehow, at some point out there, intersect the truth, and God will see that and their sincerity and say, come on in. All they have to believe, perhaps, is in some kind of force, And that intersects truth some bizarre way. And even though they deny Christ and who Christ is, they will be led into heaven. Uh, A gentleman came up to me a couple of weeks ago with a bulletin from a church that he had attended uh, about a month earlier when he was traveling to another state. And he said, here, this is an illustration of what you've been talking about in Revelation 14 about the inclusive universal belief of the church and how quickly the Protestant evangelical church is now abandoning historic doctrine for this. So he gave it to me. It's been sitting on my desk 
This past week, I opened it up. Beautifully done. Amazing. This is a massive, famous Protestant church. They were having communion, and the entire liturgy was laid out, printed out on about eight pages. The list of pastors on the back column was the length of the page. The opening statement of the bulletin gave the church's mission statement. It read, We believe in one God, known to us in Jesus Christ, also known by different names in different traditions. Now there's a tip-off. Go to another church for communion. Then the program goes along just fine. In fact, some well-known hymns are sung about the triune God. And I'm wondering, do they connect the dots here? But then the confusion returns later in the program. The worship leader says, Alleluia. We break this bread for those who journey the way of the Hindus, for those who follow the path of the Buddha, for our sisters and brothers of Islam, for the Jewish people from whom we come, and of course, just in case we left anybody out, for all those who walk the way of faith. And I muttered under my breath, yeah, and that way leads to destruction. It is a broad way. It was interesting that after reading the bulletin, getting to the end of it, where they included you know, the Buddhists and the Hindus and the Muslims and everybody who denies the atonement of Christ, denies the deity, the singular equality of Christ with the Father, doesn't matter. Then they come out and, and they sing this. Somebody didn't check the lyrics. The hymn stanza says, Salvation to God who sits on the throne. Let all cry aloud and honor his son. The praises of Jesus the angels proclaim. Fall down on their faces and worship the lamb. I said, well, amen to that. Talk about confused. But everybody's getting into heaven. And that's what matters. No, my friend, what matters is the glory of God. What matters is the glory of the lamb. What matters is the truth of revealed scripture as it relates to who he is. Paul made it very clear when he said, Whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be what? Shall be saved. Romans 10, 13. Not any name, his name. And Paul went on to say that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Not any word, this word. Not of anyone, but of Christ. But you know what? You don't have to travel far to hear the sounds and strains of universalism today. Somebody handed me a month ago a copy of our own News and Disturber that ran an article in the faith section that usually very, is very disturbing to me. A section on the Unity Church of our county claims to be a Christian movement. I read the interview with one of its pastors who said this, and I quote, we honor all religions. Unity is a spiritual movement that respects the individual's right to choose his or her own unique path to God. How tragic is that? Unity practices positive, practical Christianity. In other words, if it's negative, we don't worry about it. We honor the universal truths in all religions. You see, there you have the intersecting of whatever that truth may be, we're all getting in. What do they think about Jesus? Well, he said, we see Jesus as a master teacher of universal truths. We believe Jesus expressed his divine potential. And every person has the potential to express that same perfection. Well, isn't that reassuring? How many of you are living up to the potential of your perfection? Nobody? Me neither. 
It's universalism. And you can choose your own path and you're told that it will lead to God. Jesus Christ made it very clear that only the path marked by him and his name leads to the Father. Right across the page of that very encouraging faith section was a question, question and answer guy, sort of a religious Ann Landers. And he'd been asked a, a question, and I wish I could have written the answer, but the question was about how to get to heaven and who, who, who knows the way there. And this man, evidently some kind of religious leader, responded, and I quote him, we can't know who has the right password until we die. Testimony from our own scriptures doesn't suffice. Christianity, he wrote further, does have to deal with that exclusivist claim of John 14, 6, where Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. But even with this belief, there's theological wiggle room for those who want it. Why do you want it? He ends by writing, resolution will only come when our souls stand before God after death. I've got news for you, my friend. According to the Bible, it's too late then. It's too late. That's why we have the gospel delivered. And that's why this angel is circling the globe. It's too late then. Unless everybody's getting in. And then when they stand before God, everybody's given the password and told to enter. The fact that we are given the password now gives this angel objective reason to let us know then why we're blessed. In fact, after saying all of this horrifying stuff, after delivering the truth of hell, he uses the word happy, if you can imagine it, in the same context. Look at verse 13. He says, blessed, your translation may read, or happy, Machiris. Happy are the dead. Are you kidding? Happy are the dead. I don't want to die. I'm going to stay up with the lights on tonight because something could happen. I know where I'm going, perhaps. No, happy are the dead who die in the Lord. From now on, immediate context, those who refuse the Antichrist. Broad context, those who accept Christ and the gospel. Blessed are those, these, the dead, who die in the Lord. How are you happy? How can you be happy in the face of death? When you die in the Lord, that is, in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who is your living Lord. And since the Lord, by the way, is alive, after you die, you will live because of him forever. And I thought, what a great Easter sermon text. You thought I'd forgotten. (laughs) Stephen, it's Easter. Uh, Hell, you know, leave that for next week. That was a great text. Why? Because everything that you have been given, the horror of his wrath follows with this wonderful promise that we we, we can be happy. God has not promised any of us a long life. He has promised us death. We said it earlier. The wages of sin is what? Is death. But he has promised us that we can be happy even in that prospect. If we are in Christ Jesus. We can say with redeemed because of the truth of what we have heard and the, the truth of God's wrath. 
and the truth of God's pardon in this person and the life that he now lives, resurrected, having defeated death, we can celebrate life because we know where we're headed when we die. And so we can say with the church, with great joy, he is risen. He is risen indeed. That's our confidence. He is risen. He is risen. That's our assurance. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Listen, our appreciation for the resurrection of Christ is only genuinely possible because we believe who Christ is. And our appreciation for him ought to grow out of this kind of this text and context that this one bore the wrath of God. He took the cup of undiluted wrath. He took our punishment upon himself so that he could take our sin away. He isn't just a teacher. He isn't just a model of perfection. He is our savior. And those of us who've come to place our faith in him find in him forgiveness. And he himself is our password to everlasting life. And that would, be, that would be the final point of this angel's sermon if we had time to give him another point. And it is this, and I'll just say it and we'll close. The wrath of God is not only personal. It is not only terrible. It is not only painful. It is not only eternal. The wrath of God is entirely avoidable because of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen? Father, thank you for the description of what we will never experience because we have been rescued and saved by our living Lord. Thank you.